everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Okay, so good morning. When uh, they were putting together this series and planning the series on creativity that we're in, uh, Amos called me and asked me if I would speak today. And he said specifically that he wanted to hear from a math science perspective. I'm an engineer, so, but I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm not a preacher. <laughs> I'm not a good public speaker. One out of three. But then again, if every one of us waited until we could do something so well that nobody else could find fault with it, kind of flies in the face of creativity, doesn't it? So I'm going to start with the Gospel of John, the opening verses from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. We're talking about creativity, and there's a lot of things being made in this passage. Through him, all things were made. But it's actually the first part of the passage that I am more interested in. Uh, John starts his gospel with three short statements that are by themselves, very easy to understand and follow. In the beginning was the Word, so the Word was there at the start. The Word was with God, so they're together. The Word was with God. The Word was God. By itself, that's fine. It's when you try to put all those three thoughts together that your head starts to spin, and you want to take another look and think about it a little bit more. It's it's helpful to know that by the word, John is referring to Jesus. I mean, this is the gospel of John. It's about Jesus. And John is laying out his central premise here, which is that Jesus is God. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was there with God at the creation. Jesus was with God. It makes it a little bit more of a relationship. Jesus is God. You can't miss the reference to the beginning, to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you do miss it, it comes right back at you again. He was with God in the beginning. And then Jesus being with, with God and Jesus being God... This is the Trinity, and like I said, I'm not a preacher. I'm not going to explain that. It's a deep mystery. But it helps to understand things a little bit to know that the reference to the Word is Jesus. It's also helpful to know that in the original text, in the Greek, the word that John uses for the Word is logos. It means the Word. But it also means more than that. It means a, an ordered discourse, a logical argument. Um, if I was trying to convince you of something, that would be my argument, my, the things I said, that would be my logos. And so now 
that brings us to there being a conversational, a rational, organized, ordered, logical conversation before the creation. We're talking about creativity. We naturally associate artists with creativity, and that makes sense. They make art. They make colors with their paints when they mix them together. They create new colors. They make a palette, and then they use the colors and the paints from the palette to fill up a blank canvas and create a beautiful image. But I wanted to point out that it's not just about making things. Take the proverbial sausage factory. It doesn't matter what you put into it. It grinds out and you make sausage. It's not particularly creative and it's not beautiful. So what is it with creativity and artists? And I maintain that, and this is my first point, is that it has something to do with what's going on in our, in our minds when we're being creative. An artist is creative, not just because they're making beautiful art, but because of what's going on and how they're using their, their mind while they're doing that. So as, as scientists go about mapping brain functionality and figuring out what parts of our brain are responsible for what uh, kinds of things, what they find is that our brains have two very distinct modes of cognition. Language, for example, is in our left brain. The left brain loves to make symbols, not, not just mathematical symbols like plus and equals, but also words are symbols that mean other things. And our left brain loves to carry those symbols around and work them in order, sequential, logical ways to, to produce thinking. Our left brain keeps track of time. And our right brain is completely different. Our right brain is nonverbal, does not keep track of time. You could say it's irrational, but only in the sense that it suspends judgment. What it loves to do is perceive pieces in relationship to each other and synthesize and create the whole. Uh, our left brain, our, our right brain, you could say, is holistic. So I hope you can see what I'm getting at about creativity in artists is that part of the creativity is rooted in the right side of the brain and what's going on perceiving the pieces. Just like we're right-handed and left-handed, or left-handed, uh, most of us are left-brained, um, and actually when you move something on the right side of your body, that's those signals are coming from the left, your left brain. So with this perspective on creativity, like what's going on in our minds when we're being creative, let's talk about math and science. Scientific knowledge is advanced through a process called the scientific method. You should have learned about this in school, but in case you were not paying attention that day, I'll give you a quick primer. It's really pretty simple. First, you make a guess about how something works. Then you think about the consequences and the implications of that guess, and you make a prediction about what will happen. Third, you make an experiment, you measure the outcome, 
And then as you compare, if the experimental results did not match the prediction, then your guess is wrong. And that's all there is to it. When you learned about this, you probably learned about how to take scientific measurements. You probably learned about significant digits. And if you weren't cutting class, the teacher gave you a template to write up your lab report and formally present your findings. Here's the point. They never taught you how to make the guess. And the reason is because they can't. Myth has it Isaac Newton was sitting under a tree when an apple hit him on the head and he made a guess, a really good guess, about gravity. That's not how it works for everybody. And if you talk to somebody who's made a good guess, they have a hard time explaining it. They don't have the words. They say they were hit by a flash of inspiration or they had an aha moment. It was a shift to their right brain and that was a creative moment. The same thing happens in mathematics, but it's a little bit different. In mathematics, you have all these theorems and uh, equalities, uh, tools that you can apply to the problem. And the opportunity for the creative moment is to know when to apply which tool in what way to work the problem out. My high school calculus teacher would sometimes start class by putting a problem, and I mean a really gnarly problem that would stretch all the way across the board. He'd put it up there, and then he'd pull out a piece, a fresh piece of chalk. And armed with that, he would go and attack it for us. And he would be very animated and talking about all his theorem, the theorems and the equalities that he was using. And by the time that chalk was down to just a little nub, it would have been reduced to two. The answer is two, or something really simple like that. <laughs> and, and he would stand back and let the dust settle so we could all see the board. He would get a smile on his face, and he would say, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. It may not be something you can appreciate, but there is an aesthetic in mathematics. When a mathematician says that was a beautiful proof, what he's talking about is the path that whoever did the proof used, the, the sequence, the way they applied the tools was unique and creative. I've got one more example. This is computer programming. My son Hans knew from a young age that he wanted to be a computer programmer. Um, he wrote an essay about it, and I'm thinking maybe it was a college essay. I don't remember exactly. But he, he wrote that he wrote about how there were unlimited possibilities in what you could do inside a computer program. How's that for a creative medium? So my own favorite programming language is a language called Python. And there's guiding principles in Python. And if you adhere to them, your code can be said to be Pythonic. And those principles are um, collected in the, and written up in the form of a poem titled The Zen of Python. You can see it starts, beautiful is better than ugly. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but right out of the gate, there's this appeal to beauty. Not all of my programs are beautiful. Sometimes they don't even work. And I have to go back and work on it again. 
I have to move the pieces around. I have to stop and think about what exactly am I trying to do. And sometimes it happens. Things start to flow. I lose track of time. And I'm in the zone. The code just writes itself. It's usually taking away code. It always ends up being less than I started with. It's crisp, it's clean, it works perfectly. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's kind of like when God was in Genesis making the universe and at the end of every day, he would stop and look at it and say, that's good. That's what it feels like. So God made, made the universe. I uh, sometimes make beautiful programs. And I also, as Steph mentioned, I'm a cabinet maker in my, in my wood shop. Uh, I make cabinets and tables, furniture, um, a lot of one-off projects. I actually thought about trying to make a living doing that once upon a time. And it turns out I'm too slow. And uh, so it is really just a creative outlet for me. And one of the things that I became very concerned about was how can I make and design beautiful furniture? How can you make it be beautiful? And it turns out that there's a lot of people that have thought about that. This is called my quest for beauty in the woodshop. For example, the Greeks had an answer for a beautiful design. And the Greeks did geometry and math with straight edges and rulers. Let me show you what they did to answer the question of how do you make it beautiful. Can you see that? They would start with a square. And then they would find the midpoint of the square, and they would go up to this corner, and they would take a compass and draw an arc. So it's going to be about like that. And then they would extend the square out till it hits the arc. And when you find that point, that's what you use to finish the rectangle. We'll clean it up a little bit. And that was their answer. That is the most beautiful rectangle. In fact, they called it the golden rectangle. You might have heard of that. And it's not specifically this size. It's about the ratio, the proportions of this height to this width. And they used this in their architecture. The Acropolis, the Parthenon is all laid out according to these proportions. And apparently a lot of people agreed with them because it also proceeded through Europe. The European cathedrals, Notre Dame, for example, uh, is laid out like this. The United Nations building in New York. It's not just Western culture, the Taj Mahal. And some people would argue the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, although the Egyptians never specifically documented this ratio, that pyramid comes within like two inches of hitting the number. And it's around us in everyday life today, but we may not realize it. If you have a credit card in your wallet, that's a golden rectangle. If you have a computer screen and the resolution is 1680 by 1050, it's a golden rectangle. It's really close. Anyway, when you do the math, this turns out to be a crazy number, and it's got a symbol just like pi. 
It's one of those numbers that goes on forever. And it's 1.61803. Oh, believe me, it goes on. So that's a pretty good answer for how to make beauty in the, in the wood shop. Problem is, it's hard to make everything exactly that ratio, that proportion. So the quest goes on. In 1200, there was an Italian mathematician, so hundreds of years ago, and he published a book and described a series of numbers. The first one is zero, the next one is one, and his formula for getting the next number is really easy. You just add the two numbers ahead of it. So if the, the third number is one plus zero, it's one. The next number is one plus one, it's two. And then two plus one is three, and then five. Now we're getting somewhere, eight, 13, and on it goes. The sequence of numbers is really famous. It's called the Fibonacci numbers, named after the mathematician Fibonacci. There's another way to, to spell them out. I explained it to you algebraically, but you can also do it geometrically. It works like this. You make a square, and you arbitrarily say that the length of that square is one. And then you use the side of that square to make another square, which is gonna be the same size. That's also gonna be a one. And then you look at the top here, it's got two squares of size one, so that's two, and you make a square on top of that. And then you keep working around. This square is gonna be a three because it's next to a two and a one. I hope you can see that. Then the next one is gonna be a five. These are getting a little short, I think. So that's eight, that's still short. That's a 13. So you can see it's the same series of numbers. One, one, two, three, five, eight, 13. Goes on forever. This number, which is called phi, is related to the Fibonacci numbers because as it turns out, every time you put another square on this diagram, it gets closer and closer to the golden rectangle. And so this is where the quest for beauty in the wood shop ends because it turns out that any rectangle that you find in this diagram is a pretty good guide for designing your piece of furniture. So for example, if I was gonna be building a hutch and I had a base and shelves, I could look and I could see this rectangle right here and I could say, okay, there's my base and there's the shelves, the two is the shelves. Since the base is height one, the shelves should be about twice as high as the base. And because it's height one, the width is two, so the thing should be about twice as wide as it is high. And this turns out to be just a really great guide for creating beauty in the wood shop. Now there's a funny thing that happens with these numbers. So the quest for beauty is over. I've shared my experience in the wood shop. But these numbers keep popping up in nature. Have you ever seen a sunflower? I have a picture of a sunflower that Janet took. 
And can you see how there's spirals in the, in the middle from the seed? Can you see those spirals? Well, it turns out if you count those spirals, and I had Janet trace them out in the, her, her special new program. So those are the reds she drew on top of it. And she numbered them. One is at the very top. It goes all the way around, comes out to 34. Well, we just have to go a little bit farther in this sequence. 13, 21, 34. The number of spirals in a sunflower and a pine cone is almost always a Fibonacci number. When this, Janet just did this yesterday, and she was kind of like, you got lucky. So she <laughs> took another picture of a sunflower that we grew this, this summer, and that one came out to 34 too. So now I'm going to make a little diagram for you for a second. I'm going to make a little... I'm going to connect these dots. Let me just make a guide for myself. Uh, so I hope you can see that this makes a kind of a spiral. This diagram based that generates Fibonacci numbers makes a spiral which exactly describes the It's called a nautilus spiral. Exactly describes the shape of a nautilus shell. Snails grow their shells this way. I don't know why, but if you look in outer space, spiral galaxies, they also make this spiral. Got a couple more examples. I've got a lot actually, but I don't have all day. So that's my yard right there. And this is a weed that grows in my yard. It grows that much in one day. So I'm going to make a couple of things for the days. And I'm not a good gardener, great gardener, so I don't always get on top of the weeds. So this guy goes another day. And now that stem is mature, and he sprouts a bud. Now I'm in trouble because the next day, the stem grows again, sprouts another bud, and that bud from yesterday starts a new, a new stem. But it's not mature yet, so there's no bud. The next day, the stem continues, it sprouts a bud, and a bud comes out of that stem that it made. This one continues, and it's now two days old, it's mature, it sprouts a, a bud. The next day, it continues to grow, it sprouts a bud, it makes another stem. This stem grows, becomes mature, that stem grows with a bud, and it, the bud makes a new stem. And it does it again the next day. So here's, here's the point. Let's count how many stems there are in total. There's one, one, two, three, Five, and if I drew it right, eight. I've actually found weeds like this in my garden, and I gotta confess, sometimes I let them grow just to see how long they'll keep going. <laughs> this, in uh, his original publication, Fibonacci talked about bunny populations, and the same kind of thing happens. I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about bees 
I'm a beekeeper, as Steph mentioned. And bee biology is really kind of weird and different. You might not know about this. I don't know why they call it talking about the birds and the bees, because now that we're talking about bees, it works different, so pay attention. <laughs> In the hive, the queen lays all the eggs for, for, the, for, the, for the brood, for the new bees. And she can lay both fertilized and unfertilized eggs. When the egg is fertilized and the egg hatches, that bee grows up to be a worker bee in the hive. It's always a girl. All the worker bees in the hive are girls. When the queen lays an unfertilized egg, that egg also hatches and it grows into a bee, but it's a drone. It's a boy bee. So let's review. There's a boy bee. How many parents does he have? He's only got one parent. It's the queen who laid an unfertilized egg. The queen is a girl bee. She came from a fertilized egg. Did I just say unfertilized? The boy came from an unfertilized egg from the queen. The queen came from a fertilized egg. So there's both a boy and a girl. That boy came from only a girl. The female came from a pair. Do you see it? Count the bees in each generation. One, one, two, three, five, and so it goes. So the question I have for you, this guy Fibonacci, did he invent these numbers? Did he invent this sequence? No, I think he discovered it. So what's the point? Well, God created the universe. He was there with the, with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the Logos. There was a conversation, a logical, ordered, rational conversation preceding it that went into that creation somehow. God created all of us. He created us with a left brain and a right brain, two modes of thinking. And when we use the right side of our brain, that has something to do with creativity, which allows us to not only recognize and appreciate and enjoy beauty, but also to create it in the same way that God created the universe and made it beautiful and enjoyed it when he said, that's good. We are part of that creation and that creativity. When God made us in his image, the creativity is something we can participate in. We just need to learn to use both sides of our brain and thinking in both modes. <clears throat> How do we do that? There's a, there's a lot of different ways to do that, but one way that I would suggest is that we pray. You've heard it said before, when you pray, you start by speaking to God. 
It's your language, left side of your brain. But we finish by listening to God. If you make that shift to a meditative state and you listen, you open yourself up to be part of the conversation, to um, be open to divine insight and inspiration. So I think the best way to end is actually the way I started. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.